So I wanted to talk tonight about a teaching that comes from some of the stories of the um, first Buddhist nuns. And actually it's interesting, just as I was about to ring the bell, I remembered that this bell, this bell, was the gift, um, was a gift to the Sangha from Nicola Geiger. And Nicola was um, (laughs) an extraordinary, perfectly ordinary human being who died a couple of years ago um, at about 85 or 86. And she loved the bell and the sound of the bell and really felt that um, ringing the bell was a hugely important part of practice. And she was very attentive to mindfulness in everyday life. Um, And every time I would go to visit her, we would sit down and she would ring the bell. Make sure we were really there. So in talking about women and Buddhism tonight, I really would like to remember Nicola. She was definitely one of my teachers. She really midwifed me in my birth into the teaching world. And um, and thank her for her role as a woman Buddhist teacher. So as some of you know, because I've mentioned it in here, I've been thinking a lot about the role of women in Buddhist practice. Um, It's been up quite a bit in in various ways. Certainly we're having some discussion about it at Spirit Rock. And, um, And many of us who've been practicing for a while, and some of you in this room have, Um, can remember the days when there were hardly any women who were teaching in the Buddhist world and you would go to a retreat and the chances were probably about 8 out of 10 that there would be no women teachers at all whatsoever and we're still lagging behind but we're catching up a little bit and of course for many many years in Asia and particularly in the Theravadan world of Buddhist practice there have been very few women teachers. Um, The lineage of fully ordained nuns died out in the Theravadan world very early on, and so there hasn't been such a creature. The women who are nuns now have fewer precepts and technically are not fully ordained monastics. We're not going to talk about that tonight, really. Um, But not only has there been a lack of women teachers, then of course there's a lack of teachings that come from women, really significant teachings. And there's been sometimes, I think, a a loss of any sense of what one might call the sacred feminine in our practice. And this is something that's not just important to women, it's important to men as well. It really has, the, the sacred feminine has no real connection to actual gender identity. So I made a resolve. I've I've been thinking some, when I was teaching at Vajrapani, I realized I wanted to write some new Dharma talks. I was tired of my same old, same old Dharma talks. And so some of you are probably going, oh great, thank goodness, she's finally going to give a few (laughs) new talks. And one of the things I really wanted to spend some time thinking about and researching and reflecting on uh, were some of these teachings from the very early women who were nuns and see if we could bring that into our thinking and our practice a little bit more here. 
I still have the idea that some night you're going to come in here, we're going to be facing that way. And we're all going to sit facing Guan Yin just, just to see how it feels, you know, just once. Um, and I'm sure some of you won't like it and some of you probably will, but we'll see if it ever really happens. So the Buddha, you know, the Buddha, when he was born, he was born, his mother was had left... Um, the palace where she lived, she was on her way to her home, to her parents' home, which was a traditional thing for women to do in those days, to go back to their um, birthplace to give birth. And um, she was accompanied by her sister, Pajapati, who was the Buddha's aunt, Gotama's aunt, Siddhartha's aunt. And so um, she gave birth en route. The, the baby came a little sooner than expected and at Lumbini. Some of you may have visited there. And um, and then about a week after the Buddha was born, she died. And so he was raised by his aunt, whose name was, as I said, Pashupati. And, um, you know, we all know the story. He grew up and, and then he began to see that there was perhaps more to think about than just life in the palace and he got out and he saw someone who was sick and someone who was old and someone who was dead and that really rattled his cage and he went off to pursue the spiritual life. He left his wife and his child and the palace and the safety of that world and became a spiritual seeker for about six years. And when he came back, some of his family were kind of dubious. I mean, he had it had been um, prophesied when he was born that he could be a great world ruler, and he effectively walked away from that in order to pursue this other path. And I'm sure there were, you know, as in any family, um, when your child does something that you're not so sure about when they come home, you know, the reception can be a little lukewarm, and it was. But she, Pajapati, really was one of the people who was quite interested in what he had seen and learned and went, you know, attended teachings with him and was quite interested and began to, she became effectively one of his followers. And as the years went by, um, the king died and she was left alone. And for a woman in those days not to have the support of male relatives was was actually quite difficult, and so there. But she was an extraordinary being, and she gathered, you know, she managed to hold her own. And, and then women began to gather around her, and there were women who were actually part of of Gotama's harem before he became the Buddha, and who had been left alone. And there were women who were left because. Um, their husbands had gone off and become monks, had become followers of the Buddha, so they needed some support. And then there were women who had lost their their husbands to in warfare. So there were a number of women who were kind of left on their own, and there became quite this significant community um, that grew around her. And at some point, she realized that she would really like to, as they say in the monastic world, go forth into the homeless life. So she wanted to become a nun or a monk. 
So she went and she asked the Buddha, and I'm going to read you just a few lines here and there from the story. And um, and she says she goes and and she stands at a very respectful um, distance from from him, and she says, you know, it would be good if women could be allowed to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless state. And he says, don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. And so a second time and the third time she asks, and each time he basically says, forget it. Don't set your heart on it. Um, and so she was really discouraged, and she figured he really wasn't going to let women do it, and she left, and, and she was in tears. And so he left to go to another town and she cut off her hair shaved her head and put on the saffron colored robes and followed him 150 miles to the next place and outside of the hall where he was sitting she stood there with her feet all swollen and cut up from walking barefoot she walked barefoot the whole way um, and covered with dust and weeping and Ananda sees her and says, why are you crying? And so she tells him. And so um, Ananda thinks, you know, why not? It would be okay to have women. And so he goes in and he asks the Buddha, you know, it would be good if women could have permission to do this. And the Buddha says, don't set your heart on it, forget it. And Ananda asks three times, and each time the Buddha says, no. Three was sort of the, you know, the magical if you ask three times, you usually got, you were considered to be really serious and have more chance. So then Ananda takes another tack and he says, you know, is it possible if a, if a woman was entering in, to become a, a monk, to enter into homelessness, could she realize the fruits of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and our hunchup? So could she, could she awaken? And Ananda says, yeah. I mean, the Buddha says, yes, Ananda, they're able. And um, so then Ananda says, well, you know, if they can be realized, if they can wake up, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she did, after all, raise you. She was your aunt, nurse, foster mother, and when your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed. So then the Buddha says, okay. Okay. If they will, they have these eight extra special roles that they have to observe. And if they will observe them, he would let them come in. And so um, that's how the order of Buddhist nuns began. And so she went on to found the nuns' order. And as I said, many of these women, they were called the 500, which I now understand means a lot. It's not that there, was necess- there were necessarily 500 exactly, but it was a way of saying a lot. And so they all gathered around. And, and there's quite a body of short poetry, actually, that these women wrote. And one of the earliest women was a woman whose name was Mita. And um, she was one of this group who had lost husbands one way or another. And so here's her poem. She wrote, To be reborn among the gods, I fasted and fasted every two weeks, day 8, 14, 
15, and a special day. Now with a shaved head and Buddhist robes, I eat one meal a day. I don't long to be a god. There is no fear in my heart. I don't long to be a god. There is no fear in my heart. I was so struck with those last two lines. This is amazing. Yeah, she was she was okay as she was as a human being. Wasn't trying to become something that she wasn't. And she was I, when I thought without fear, I, I, I played with it. I substituted our somewhat more modern word without anxiety. I thought, oh, heart without fear or anxiety. That would be really something to have a heart without fear or anxiety. And, you know, we all know this place, right? We're all, we all work so hard so much of the time to become something other than what we are, you know, just something um, better, you know. Entire sections of bookstores are labeled self-improvement, right? Like kind of thing, or self-help. Um, I remember once at a retreat, I came out one day and looked at the bulletin board and somebody had posted this little thing that said, don't improve. <laughs> don't improve. So, so we don't have very much and very often in our lives, I think, a sense of contentment with who it is. I mean, are any of you really contented with who you are? You know, I think most of us have some little closet project to get thinner or stronger or sit more or go on more retreats or study more or talk less or whatever it is, you know, something that would make us just a little bit better. I mean, this may not be a big thing. You may not think you have a big agenda about self-improvement, but most of us have something. And most of us have some place of anxiety or fear, out and out fear. And so this notion of contentment is both strange to us, a little bit foreign, and very compelling. What would it be to be that contented? And how would you do it? So here's a quote from um, the rules from the Padi, it's called the Padimoka, and it's some of the rules that the monks and the nuns chant. And um, and the first part of the quote you, you may recognize because it's often quoted. Not to do evil, to cultivate the good, to purify one's mind, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. Patience is the highest austerity, forbearance is the highest nibbana, say the Buddhas. One who strikes another is not one who has left home. One who injures another is not an ascetic. So this is really an instruction. This would be something that she would have chanted quite regularly, on usually on the, the lunar observance days, so about once a week, um, and um, as, a, as a guidance for her life as a nun. And she's saying, you know, since she became a nun, that's when she came to this place of contentment. That's when she let go of having to be something else. Well, I don't know that we have to become monks and nuns. I actually don't think that we do. 
But I do think that there's something really to be learned here. So, not to do evil is the first part of it. So that seems, you know, that's probably we're in agreement. This is a good idea, not to do evil. And many of you, I suspect, as part of your daily practice, um, say the precepts. I know I do. And um, so precepts about not harming and not taking that which hasn't been given to you and not harming with your sexuality and not harming with your speech and then not intoxicating either your body or your mind. And so these are wonderful guidelines for everyday life and they are a wonderful practice and that if you just take even one of them as a practice and of course in the context of everyday life I often point towards speech you know, being not harming with speech can take a great deal of attention and really teach us a lot, as can each one of the precepts and all of them taken together. You know, really um, practicing not harming ourselves and not harming any other being um, is one of the really important components of waking up. Because, of course, if you take on the precept not to harm, what do you see right away? You know, you see all those places where you'd like to go ahead and do the mean or nasty thing anyway, or say that little thing that you would like to say, or fire back, I did one of those today, fire back the email that you probably should have sat on for another ten minutes before you said what you said. I don't think I did any damage, but waiting would have been better. And so that's, that's part, it's a huge piece of practice. And then the second thing is to purify the mind, you know. And so purifying the mind is what we did here tonight, actually. Because purifying the mind actually implies that one of the things you have to do is see what happens with your mind. And begin to see how utterly unruly it is and how terribly cluttered up it is so many of the times. And learn to bring it to some place of quiet and some place in which you um, have enough space to see what is rather than to see what your story than to see what the stories are so often we see our stories we see through the lens of our stories instead of seeing what is and um, and so purifying the mind really means doing all of the things that we do with practice so that we're stepping outside of that place of the story and trying as hard as we can, you know, what really is happening here? What's happening here? And what is this state in my mind? And is this a wise intention or a wise action to take? And as we've talked about a lot, you know, these practices of mindfulness and loving-kindness, um compassion, all of the different practices that we do here are actually a kind of training for the mind, strengthening it. And then I was actually quite taken with this statement that patience is the highest austerity. So an austerity in monastic life, which she would have done, and certainly the Buddha did a lot of, you're often really strict practices of renunciation, um, in his day, not eating, and he he ate. You know, there was a time when he ate very little. They said one grain of rice a day. He barely, very nearly died 
um, practices of wearing only robes that are made out of rags, practices of sleeping only on the ground, you know, those kinds of things that you take on as a kind of discipline. And, um, it's a little like, you know, outward bound, except um, that's the monastic form of outward bound. You know, can you do it? It's a challenge, really. You know, can you, can you let go of these degrees of comfort? And he says, patience is the highest austerity. Now, that's interesting, patience. And so I thought a lot about patience, that this is, this is what happens when we're patient. When, we, you know, when we're patient, it means we kind of can sit back a little and allow something to show itself, to unpack itself. I thought of this a lot. I'd just been to a meeting last night. So I thought about this a lot in terms of meetings. You know, what is it to be patient in a meeting? Probably everybody here goes to meetings once in a while. And that place, you know how it is in a meeting where you want to get in there and make something happen? Not usually the most skillful thing to do. And that there's that place of patience of sitting back and, and just seeing what happens if I don't say anything for a while or if I let other people interact and see where it goes. Or what happens if I sit back and watch my children you know, just do their thing for a little bit without having to fix it or try to persuade them to do something that I think is more mature and more skillful. What happens if I'm patient with my partner? And, you know, just say, oh, okay, you know, let's see how it unpacks and watch him do his thing and see where it takes him. He just came back from Burning Man Tuesday night. That's where <laughs> my patience, <laughs> my patience really um, has come into play over the years. But you know, it's been worth it. He's learned so much, and I've learned so much, so it's been good. So so this place of patience, of, of letting go and allowing something to happen, is part of, it can be an austerity. It's very, very difficult, you know, to sit back and let someone else lead for a while. our families, our colleagues, our friends they're all sources for this practice of patience each one of you could reflect for a minute what's been your practice of patience in recent days and then um, he says that forbearance is is like nirvana nirvana, it's the ending of suffering so I actually looked up forbearance, I thought well you know, what? I had sort of a notion of what forbearance was, but I was sort of interested to see what the technical definition is. And it has a lot to do with, again, with patience, and but with endurance and self-control and refraining from and refraining from enforcing a debt. That was one of the things that actually has a legal and financial meaning to it. Um, and it has to do with restraint in the face of provocation. So. After I read all of those, I thought, sounds a lot like equanimity to me. You know, that place of real balance where you don't have to respond, you don't even have to collect your debts immediately. And, um, and you can, again, you can wait. And equanimity is one of the great fruits of this practice. You know, it's, it's the, equanimity is known to be both path and fruit. You know, it's one of those things that that where we're balanced and, and no matter what comes along, we may wobble, but we stay balanced and we can move with the event. But as you know, 
with balance. It's not a static thing. It's the kind of thing where you're always moving and adjusting and and making sure you're in the right place so that whenever the wave comes or you know the the ground shifts, you can go with it. And so all of these things, you know, even the last bit about not striking and and not hitting, being a sign that one isn't truly a monastic, really are pointing at our simple humanity. It's not about being a god. It's not about being anything special. They really are all pointing to a very skillful way of being human. We're not asked to become something extra special. The Buddha is saying, that's not the way. But he's really saying in so many of his teachings that what is asked of us is to go deeply, deeply into our own being, to see what is there, to see what is true, to see it with clarity of perception and intelligence, and then to live it with great kindness and compassion. It's so utterly practical. It's so practical, and it's so... um, you know, he, the Buddha says in one place, I wouldn't ask you to do this if it weren't possible. Isn't that wonderful? I wouldn't ask you to do this if it weren't possible. That always gives me so so much hope, even when I get to say it, you know, that, oh, it's possible. It's possible. I could do this. And so it's it's not about getting somewhere else. It's just about seeing the truth that is here and living that truth as I said, with kindness and compassion. It's very simple, and it's not easy. Very simple, and it's not easy. So in this book that I was playing around with today, it had been given to me, actually, by my friend Ajahn Tanasanti, who's a nun who has taught here, and will again, and some of you probably were here when she taught last time. She's a pretty remarkable being. So here's what she'd written in the card that I found in the book. She says, Oh, to be fully human. This requires great wisdom and compassion. May our lives be so blessed. So, you know, this being fully human Um, does require great human wisdom and great compassion but it is also I think a great blessing no fear no anxiety no need to be a god just being here so I think that's enough from me maybe you have some questions or some comments anything I've said thoughts of your own why not please Stephen nice to see you it's nice to see you too yeah. um, it's funny I, I must have just picked the right time to be here because <coughs> this conversation not that long ago with Noah about um, women in Buddhism and one of the things is I came out of it saying, I need to talk to Mary more. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> For me, anyways. But um, some of the things that I have encountered is more um, 
the kind of continuous presence of sexism and Buddhism. And it wasn't even apparent to me because I was pretty deluded or just ignorant to the fact that it was happening. It had to be pointed out to me. And I guess um, I really love the fact that you talked about you know how persistent being an, you know, a nun or being a female in, um, in the practice is. And I guess I just would love to hear your own reflections about your own personal experience around that. It's not necessarily totally on the teaching, but it is in that regard. Mm-hmm. Being a female teacher in the Dharma. Well, it's an interesting question for me, personally. And I don't want to take too much time with this, but I'm happy to... T- I'll do a little bit here, and then if you want to... Because I don't know if it's of interest to everyone. But just to say that I've not been the kind of teacher who taught women's retreats or looked to be, you know, and to do things separately. I actually enjoy being with men and don't have any problem with that kind of shared um, work. And... I'm a really good daughter, you know, and um, and many of you know my actual dad just died six months ago, seven months ago, and I was really close to him and very devoted to him, and so I'm personally watching even a shift in my own stance. Maybe it's interesting that I'm finally talking about this. I don't know. We could, I can explore that. I am exploring that. So. And I would say that um, a lot of, as the women teachers, the women teachers at Spirit Rock, for the first, we've been, Spirit Rock is about to celebrate its 20th anniversary, a week from Saturday. For the first time ever, the women teachers met as a group last April. Now, that is interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting. And we're beginning to say, wait a minute, you know, we might want to do things a little differently from the way the guys brought it back from Asia and the way we've been told to do it. So there's a little uh, that's happening. And I don't know where it's going to go. Stay tuned. I can tell you more. We're having a meeting next Monday. We're having a meeting of the teachers' council. There will be a women's council with the men observing and there will be a men's council with the women observing. I can't even begin to tell you where that's going to go. It could be quite interesting. So I think some of what's happening is that, you know, Prajapati has been standing there in her bare feet and her robes for 2,500 years. And now Buddhism has come to the West where there's this whole shift that has happened around women and how women are in the world and also Buddhism has come to the 21st century, so it's not just happening in the West, it's happening everywhere. And exactly where that's going to take us, I don't know. You know? Um, Buddhism shifts and changes and grows every time that happens. Many of you know there's a small community of nuns who are planning on moving to California in the next years, partly to get out from under the male domination in the monastic world. They're not seeking to change things and they're not wanting to stop becoming nuns. They're trying to figure out a way to do it differently. So, you know, it really brings us back to that place where we are, in many ways, we're the cutting edge, you know. Buddhism has been in the West for 
let's just say in the in this kind of community for about 60 years we are infants and who knows where it's going or even if it will survive you know i'm so happy that we're beginning to have you know a bigger community of younger people because that makes all you know i'm going to be 67 in a few weeks and makes me feel like oh maybe you know when us old folks die off it's going to keep going for a while so this is good um, but exactly what form it will take it's up to us and to you so I think it's, it, it has been a persistent thing and sometimes it's died back because we've been good daughters and, and you know I mean Spirit Rock has a really charismatic male leader and um, we adore him and you know, we need to get the women in there a little bit more. So, so that's the beginning of an answer, anyway. Maybe more than anything else. Please, Henry. Um, the, you uh, mentioned um, the thought of not improving, and then um, also talked about the precepts and ah, um, so looking at quite speech and so. How do those two work together? That's such a good question. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, it's good to have the intention to change, right? It's, you know, if you know that you have some bad speech habits, let's just say, <clears throat> it's great to have, to see them and to have the intention to change. But there's a really tricky place, isn't there? Because sometimes when we see what isn't so good about ourselves, what do we do? Judgment, criticism, you know, all of that. And there's that place where we don't hold ourselves with some level of kindness and even contentment. In the sense that, this is the way it is right now. Okay, I blew it. For one thing, when you can hold yourself that way in the moment and say, oh, I blew it, often the next thought is, how can I apologize, fix that, you know, do whatever needs to make amends? So we do that. That's much more skillful than not saying it. And it also means, I think there's a way in which holding ourselves with kindness actually allows more space for that intention to, to train. And then it, it, I think it becomes more about training than it does about improving. It's a subtle difference. But I think it's useful to consider. You know, it's like when you want to get stronger. Yeah, you do want to get stronger. I suppose that's improvement, but it's not quite the, you know, i got to be at this other level. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 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 You had a question. I just wanted to mention Sharon Salzberg. She's a woman teacher, and I've... She had a tremendous impact on she taught me meta uh-huh. to that. And I've given away more of her books than any other yeah. teacher I've yeah. had to friends. And I recommend all of her books are wonderful. Yeah. Sharon is an, an amazing being. That and we've been blessed with some really wonderful women and she teachers. Was with Jack and yeah. the rest that came over. Yeah. But you know, even I actually didn't know this until quite recently. Apparently it was quite a while before she would even give a Dharma talk. The guys gave the talks. 
So, you know, and yes, we have had, we certainly are beginning to have women teachers. I mean, I'm sitting here, you know, just an ordinary middle-class Western woman, right? And um, so gradually it's changing. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're having this conversation, so this is good. But yes, thank you for reminding us of Sharon. Yeah. Okay, one more and then we'll stop. I was struck by um, what you said and read about not wanting to be a god mm-hmm. and not wanting to be something other than who we are. <clears throat> I have a long, unfulfilled um, desire from Halloween as a child to be an angel. <laughs> and it was a big part of something inside of me. And not too long ago, I actually was in the costume store, bought a pair of angel wings to see what this was like. Oh. Took them home, put them on uh, to show my husband, and discovered that wearing these wings made it very difficult for me to get around. Made <laughs> 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 it impossible. To be really close to someone else, or uh-huh. for them to be really close to you, it was such a what a um, great metaphor. Yeah. Such a great metaphor. Such a great moment. Uh-huh. And I hung them up and put them in a closet and totally forgot about them. Uh-huh. And I was like, now I see it. Now I get it. Uh-huh. We don't have to become. Yeah. Yeah. Something other than. Yeah. Very nice. Great was, story. <laughs> this is so. Thank you. Good place to end, I think. So let me make a couple of. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.